Open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter number 11. John, chapter 11. In verse number 2, we're told Lazarus was sick. That's an exact quotation. Lazarus was sick. Verse 14 says, Lazarus is dead. Verse 17, it tells us that he was in the grave four days. Now, verse number 44, I text this morning. And he that was dead came forth bound hand and foot with grave cloths, and his face was bound with a napkin. Jesus saith unto them, Loose him and let him go. Chapter 12 and verse 2, it says, Lazarus was one of them that sat at the table with him. I want to speak to you this morning about liberating Lazarus. In this chapter, we see a lot of different things. For one, we see a demonstration of God's great power. That's always encouraging. We see an expression of His compassion. tells us that Jesus wept. But we also see that it was a part of his plan to use people. He used people, for example, to bring the news of of the fact that Lazarus was sick. And so they came to tell the Lord and call the Lord to come there, hopefully to heal him. God used people to unbind Lazarus, and to turn him loose. Last week when I ended the message talking about God using Moses, and I made a statement and I wanted to make sure that I get it right because this is the way the message ended in the last minute or two last week. I made a statement that said, don't expect God to do anything for you unless you're willing to let Him do something with you. You see, God's plan to reach man always involves using man. And He wants to use you. And here in our story this morning, we see another example of God's plan to use man. And I don't want you to misunderstand that. Because this is not something that is demanded out of weakness on God's part. This is self-imposed. God depending upon man to fulfill his plan. Aren't you glad that God isn't so weak, you know, that he just wants to do it, but he can't? Uh, God's more powerful than that. You know, and we think on one hand that God doesn't need us at all. And, you know, well, that's true. Unless He has a plan to use us. 
So, so you see, this isn't out of need on God's part that I that I've just got to have your help. No, it is a choice that the Lord makes, and. And this is why in Psalm 70 it speaks about Israel where it says they limited the Holy One of Israel. Imagine putting limitations on Jehovah God. Imagine binding His hands. Imagine limiting what He can do. And you see, God puts Himself in this position out of His own choice. And He does it for our sake. It's not for His sake. He wants us to to be able to participate in His great work. And it's a great day when we realize that we are a part of God's plan. I mean, that is an honor, that is a privilege. And uh, here we see the story begins with a picture of man's need of God, and then it concludes here with a picture of God's need of man. And from the start to the finish, it's a beautiful story, and it's take, it takes us from the uh, from the trip where they go to tell the Lord about the illness of Lazarus. It takes us from that trip all of the way to the tomb, and then in chapter 12, to the table. In other words, here's a man that goes from death to dining. And any part of this story would be of great interest and profitable for our study but this morning, I want us to be reminded of what, not only what God can do, but what we can do through Him. Now remember, this appears to be an impossible situation. Uh, nobody could be more helpless than Lazarus was. He's dead. He's dead. I mean, how do you get more helpless than that? He needed what nobody but God could provide Man couldn't help with this. There wasn't anything man could do. You could bring in the best doctors of the land, but they are limited by God. God doesn't give them the the power. God doesn't give them the intelligence, the ability, and the things that they need to bring healing to somebody else's body. So they have limitations imposed upon them by God Himself. But God's not limited within himself so they they bring the problem to the lord and uh, as you know the lord met the problem in that he raised lazarus from the dead i, I find it interesting fb meyer uh, wrote many years ago he said this chapter might more truly be known as the raising of martha and whenever you look at the story, you understand what he means by that, because here is a woman that, although she is the sister of Lazarus, and, and although she is calling out for the Lord to come there and hopefully heal her brother, uh, she, she's a woman that was full of doubt at the same time, especially whenever it became known that he's already dead. And so the Lord arrives, and she said, well, too late now. You know, he's been in the grave four days already. There's not any need in doing anything now. And so when he says, take away the stone, she wants to argue about that. Well, it won't do any good, you see. But whenever she, when she stopped arguing and started trusting and doing as the Lord told her to do, all of a sudden the Lord leaped into action 
And this is a demonstration of the fact that God does what He does in response to our faith in Him. Now, God could just choose to do it, but He doesn't. That's why the Bible says, for without faith it is impossible to please God. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. God honors faith. And when they expressed faith in the Lord by removing the stone, the Lord solved the problem by raising Lazarus. And then notice he says in verse 44, Loose him and let him go. Loose him and let him go. Now get a picture of what this must be like. He's out of the tomb, but he's not out of trouble. I mean, I'm trying to picture in my mind how it is that he's walking, you know, and he's kind of like one of those mummies in a horror movie, and in some way or another he's able to navigate his way out of the out of the tomb, and he's standing there... Uh, but he's all bound up in the grave clothes. And so, uh, by the way, his face is covered. He's blind. He's bound. Uh, here, Here is a man that although now he has life, he doesn't have liberty. The Lord just worked a miracle in doing what man cannot do. But now we have a situation where there's something that needs to be done that man can do. And that's why the Lord said to those standing there, loose him and let him go. He could have snapped his fingers and those grave cloths would have just dropped off of Lazarus. That would have taken care of the problem. But the Lord refused to do what man could do. Now, keep in mind, he did what man couldn't do in that he raised him from the dead, but now there's something that needs to be done that man can do. You don't need a miracle for this. And there are a lot of times I think, you know, we want God to work a miracle in our life and to do something for us when we could, when we could do it ourselves, and God doesn't cooperate. I don't know, I think sometimes we forget what it was like right after our conversion. Oh, you know, we might think about the great joy that we have in our heart, and now we've got this peace of knowing that, that if we die, we're going to heaven. You know, that's all wonderful. But we, we forget about the fact that new converts need help. They have life, but they need help living that life. They're forgiven, but they're not faultless. You see, whether you're 8 or 80, when you first trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you are a babe in Christ, and you need help. It'd be a crime to bring a baby into this world and then just ignore it, don't you think? I mean, that'd be horrible. You know, to give birth and say, well, you know, I did my part. I gave you life. Now, there you are. Make it on your own. No, we incur a responsibility when we bring life into this world. 
You know, by the same token, I think a lot of times, you know, as Christians and in our ministry, we get the idea that the only important thing is just to get somebody saved, and then after that we can just leave them alone. Why, they're saved. They're on the way to heaven now. They don't need our help. And we do exactly the same thing as a mother who gives birth and then just leaves the baby laying there. There's that new convert without any of the things that he or she needs. He says, loose him and let him go. I want you to think this morning about the responsibility that we Christians have toward one another, especially toward those that are new Christians. In the first place, we need to enable them. You see, being a Christian doesn't make you perfect. I've never met one anyway, have you? New believers need freedom. They need to be liberated They're saved and on their way to heaven, but the process of sanctification that ultimately ends in perfection when we get to heaven, it's just a process that we're going through. There might be addictions, for example. Whenever I say addictions, I'm not just talking about the chemical type of addictions. That's one type. Do you ever stop and think about someone getting saved and maybe they're uh, addicted to alcohol or they're addicted to some other drug and uh, what a struggle it is? Listen, I mean, I've been there, done that, and many of you have, and you know what a struggle it was. You see, when you first get saved, God doesn't just automatically now he can and he maybe he does with some folks but with most of us he doesn't just take away all of those desires that chemical dependency is still there those other habits that are not chemical in nature they might still be there you see during the course of our life we tend to develop you know some bad habits that are Maybe not anything that's horribly sinful or hurtful to somebody else, but they're just bad habits and counterproductive to, you know, our welfare. And when we get saved, we don't just automatically become everything we need to be. We need help. I mentioned the other day that shortly after being saved, I'd got into an argument. I think it started with my mother-in-law, if I can remember right, and then it spread to my wife. And so after a while, I'm in an argument with the whole family or something, and I'm walking down Commercial Street there in Springfield, and, and yeah, and, and, and the thought has occurred to me, I, I think I'll just go get drunk. I've embarrassed myself. You know, here, I'm a Christian, you know. I, I, I'm not supposed to do that anymore. And, and, you know, I've said a few choice words and lost my temper. And the next thing I know, this car pulls up the sidewalk. And lo and behold, there's that preacher. The last person I wanted to see. And the one person I really did need to see. And I'm so glad that somebody cared enough, you know, that they were there when I needed them. Because I hadn't reached perfection yet. By the way, I still haven't. You see, people 
People need what other people can provide. We need to enable them, whether it's dealing with addictions, it might have to do with them dealing with their associates. You know, many of you have been saved 20, 30 years and more. And over that period of time, you've developed a circle of friends, of Christian friends. Your best friends are Christians. They're members of this church. And so you have this close-knit fellowship with others, but a lot of times... Someone that has only recently trusted Christ as their Savior, they don't have that network of friends. They don't have anybody to lean on. Uh, the only ones they've got is their old beer-drinking buddies and what have you. I mean, that's all they know. The very same people that drug them down. And by the way, let me tell you, they're just waiting like vultures out there to pull them right back down into the same pig pen that the Lord delivered them from. They need help in getting away from their old associates. It might not be an addiction. It might not be their associates, but it might be their attitudes. I don't, I don't know about you, but I don't know anybody yet that the day after, after they got saved that automatically they had the perfect attitude. Some of us were still grumpy. You know, some of us, you know, still rude or whatever. Our attitudes don't just change overnight. We need others to enable us, to help us, to become the people that God wants us to be. And if we're going to enable them, we need to empower them. You know, it's one thing, it's one thing to pat someone on the back and say, I'm on your side, I'm all for you, we're going to get through this together, I'm going to be praying for you. That's one thing, but it's another thing to empower them to actually do it. And we need to empower our Christian friends. Well, how do you do that? I mean, because we don't have some holy anointing that is upon us to where we can lay hands on them and automatically give them supernatural powers. We can't do that. So how do we empower them? We empower them by teaching them. That's our responsibility. You say, oh, but I don't teach a Sunday school class. It doesn't make any difference. Every Christian ought to think of themselves as a teacher of some kind because we all have a responsibility toward one another. I challenge you when you get home to go through the New Testament, get a concordance, and look up all of those many one another phrases. You see, the Bible teaches how we are to relate, how we are to interact with each other. And whenever we teach others how to do that, it empowers them because now, now we've not only enabled them, but now in addition to helping them, we're teaching them how to help themselves. And by the way, there's only so much anybody can do for another person. It always gets back down to the fact that you have to take responsibility for yourself there's some people that are habitually addicted to needing help. And I mean that in the sense that they're constantly depending on somebody else to encourage them. 
The Bible says David encouraged himself in the Lord. And I want to tell you, you're going to be in trouble if you depend on everybody else to encourage you and to help you. Because although they should, it doesn't always happen. We need to empower others by being their teacher in the sense that we not only educate them, but we set a good example for them, just as we would with our children. Then we need to edify them. That word edify means to build up. Well, we build them up by what? We build them up by empowering them. The Bible says over in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, Let all things be done unto edifying. And so many times we don't give that any consideration. I've heard people say, well, you know, I'm just going to quit going to church. I don't get anything out of it anymore. Well, I can tell you why. And it doesn't have anything in the world to do with how well the choir sings. It has nothing to do with how good the preacher is, has nothing to do with that. You don't get anything out of it because you don't put anything into it. And then you want to gripe about not getting anything out of it. Those that get the most out of it are those that put the most into it. And we need to think about that. Our responsibility to edify or to build up one another And there's not a Christian on earth who does not need to be edified. And there's nobody exempt from the responsibility of edifying other people. New Christians, of course, need it more than anybody. And we need to be there to build them up instead of tearing them down. You know, anybody can tear people down. Speaking the other day about meeting Dr. Lee Robertson many years ago and the conversations that I had with him and what it meant in my life at that particular time. And, and I'll never forget Dr. Robertson preaching a sermon entitled, A Monkey with a Match. You know, and you, you, you think about it, a monkey has no sense of values whatsoever. You give a monkey a match, you know, and he'll, he'll burn the building down. You know, one of the things about about children is that they don't have the same sense of values that we do as adults. That hasn't developed yet. And so consequently, listen, you give them a diamond ring, that kid will flush it down the commode. They don't attach any value to that. And you see young Christians so many times that have not matured spiritually and, and they, don't, they don't see the value of the Lord's church and they don't see the importance of them being involved in it. And so they just hang on and cling to and, and eventually get tired of the church and become dropouts. That wouldn't happen if you were busy trying to edify the other members of the church. And then we need to encourage people. Most all of you could quote at least a part of Hebrews 10.25. Anybody tell me just a little bit what it's about. Hebrews 10.25. Forsake. All right. Church attendance, right? Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. 
But why do we assemble ourselves together? Well, the verse just before tells us why that is so important. That we might provoke. You see, you can use the word provoke in a good way or a bad way. It means to excite, it, you know, provoke. It means to generate interest. To provoke one another unto love and good works. You know, we get really good at provoking one another, don't we? In the wrong way. But how many times do we think, I mean, before we ever get to the church building and meet with God's people, how many times do we determine in our heart that I'm going to do something to provoke people unto love and to good works? And you see, if they're not loving and kind, and if they're not working for the Lord, if they're not faithful to God, what do we do? Oh, we generally blame them. You know, we refer to them as little immature baby Christians, or we talk about them being backslidden, or we say things like, well, they really don't love the Lord, or they don't love the church, they they don't do anything. You know whose fault that is? At least in part, it's your fault and my fault. Because we are to provoke them unto love and good works. If we were doing our job, they'd be doing what they're supposed to be doing. So we need to encourage one another. Because I'm going to tell you, regardless of how old you are, how many years you've been saved, you'll never get to the point that you don't need encouragement. Everybody does. And it's so easy to walk in and sit down and walk out without ever doing anything to encourage other people. Now let me tell you one of the best ways to encourage people. And that is to engage with others. Or maybe I should say to embrace others. Paul said, greet ye one another with a holy kiss. Well, a lot of people don't even want to shake hands. A lot of people, you know, just come in and sit down. You know, Brother Tim say, you know, let's all sing together on this course and shake hands with one another and uh, and so. You know, some people expect everybody to run to them. They don't get them to go to anyone else. Reminds me of the story that preached a sermon about about recognizing our loved ones in heaven. Now, I don't know why in the world anybody would need a sermon on that because it's pretty obvious, you know, that if we know one another down here when we get to heaven, we're going to know our loved ones, right? I mean, that is obvious, but... He felt the need to preach on that subject, and naturally the people loved it. Oh, when I get to heaven, I'll see Grandma and Grandpa, Mom and Dad, they'll all be up there. I'll recognize them. Well, during the course of the week, he received a letter, and um, the letter said, Dear Sir, I would be much obliged if next week you would preach a sermon on recognizing your friends here on earth because I've been attending your church for six months and no one 
has recognized my presence yet. Now, you think about that. Maybe you're thinking, well, that doesn't happen. Who are you kidding? I've had so many people come and say, well, you know, I joined such and such church, and I could mention names, but I'll, I'll not do that. But I'm not trying to embarrass people, even though they need to be embarrassed. But they said, join this church, you know, and, and, and went there for a year, and nobody ever even shook our hand. Well, I don't blame you for getting out. Why'd you wait a year? You know, I often I often tell you folks, and you know it. Listen, we might have a we might have an excuse or a reason for not having the best preaching in the world, or the biggest building, or the most beautiful building, or or you know the biggest choir. We, we might have excuses for that, but we never have an excuse for being unfriendly. Amen. There's only one reason why a church is unfriendly, and that's because they're unloving. And if they're unloving, you need to head for the hills and find someplace else. How many times, you know, we're talking about bringing a baby into the world and and then just leaving it to its own devices and, you know, okay, kid, here you are. Now you make it the best you can. I can't help but wonder if maybe... If maybe God would do even greater things if we took better care of the people that we've got. Oh, somebody says, well, whoa, we had not anybody saved or baptized, you know, in a month now. And I, I, just, I, wonder, I wonder why. What in the world is going on? Boy, there must be a problem in the church. And at the same time, you've had a dozen drop out of Sunday school and nobody ever contacted them. Nobody ever called them, sent a card or anything. And how can we realistically ever expect them to come back when they didn't feel any expression of love while they were here? You know, and it's real easy to look back over, you know, the last few years and think about so many that have dropped through the cracks, so to speak of. Now, let me tell you, your Sunday school teacher, although he or she should be making their best effort, I'm telling you, they can't do it all. They need your help. And if you're a member of this church, you have a responsibility, just like every other member, to do what you can to encourage people. And a part of that is engaging them, embracing them, letting, letting them know that, you know, that they're welcome and that you invite them to be a part of your life. Then we need to endear ourselves to others. I'll never forget many years ago, whenever we moved out of Missouri and leaving the church there in Fairgrove, and the text I used that day was Philippians 1, verse 31, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And to this day, I can look back over the years and I can call by name different people that God used in my life to to help me along the way. You, you know, you, you, you'd never forget people like that. 
They endear themselves to you in that they do something to let you know they really care about you. Don't, you don't ever forget an experience like that. Now think about this. The Lord says, loose him and let him go, and, and they do. Someone's taking hold of those grave cloths, and he, he, can, he can feel the touch. And, and maybe, maybe he can hear their voice saying, hold still a minute, I'm about to get this, or... Somebody takes off that napkin part from the face and now he can, he can see. What an experience that would have been. Not, listen, not only for Lazarus, but also for them. To know that you have a part in liberating this man who has just received life and you have a part in helping him. We need to remember those that have helped us. And it also ought to motivate us to do even more. You know, just trying to picture in my mind what it would have been like to to be there. And I'm certain for the rest of his life, he thought about so-and-so's touch or their voice. He thought about the tenderness that they expressed toward him. And they're thinking about how God used them. And that gives them an even greater motivation to do what God wants them to do. There's just nothing so exciting as knowing that that I'm filling my spot in God's plan and I'm doing what He wants me to do the best that I can and seeing the fruit of that. Seeing people whose lives have been changed and blessed because we made an effort to be there to help them. And instead of us just sitting back and criticizing them, we think so many times all of the, all of the fault is all on their part. And yet the Bible says we are to overcome evil with good. And those very people that are so offensive to you ought to be the object of your interest to the point that you demonstrate love for them. By the way, isn't that exactly what Jesus did with you? I mean, after all, you were so filthy and vile and sinful and worthless. There was absolutely no reason in all of the world for God to ever show any interest in you, let alone make provision for salvation. And He sent His Son, who died in your place, Whenever you see those around you that are not living up to God's standard and they are an offense to you, you keep in mind the only way you'll ever be able to help them is by demonstrating goodness. Remember, it's the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And it's your goodness toward others that helps eventually, helps them with the restoration of their lives. Loose him and let him go. I'm telling you, there's someone around you that needs your ministry. You need to loose them, let them go. You need to minister to them and help them. 
The Lord's not going to do for us what we can do for ourselves. And there's one more thing I want to add to all of this. As we think about our part in God's plan, we need to realize that in doing this, we are emulating the Lord Jesus Christ. When you turn over to the, to, to the next chapter there in chapter number 13, and we find the Lord in the upper room, and this marvelous picture of our blessed Lord washing the dirty, stinking feet of His apostles. Get the picture now. None of them saw the opportunity. None of them said, you are the master, we want to wash your feet. All they're thinking about at that point was themselves. And the Lord washed their feet and said, if I then, your Lord and master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. Let that sink in. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, the servant is not greater than the Lord, and neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. Now listen, if ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. The Lord said, I've given you an example, and I want you to emulate the example that I've given you. I've washed your feet. I want you to wash somebody else's feet. I've loved you. I want you to love them. And it's not just about ministering to new Christians, although they might need it the most. It's ministering to anyone Put yourself in Lazarus' place. He, he couldn't help himself. The Lord gave him life, but there, there he is, and he can't see. He is bound. He is blind. He can't do anything for himself. He can't get out of this mess. And the Lord said, loose him. Let him go. Will you let God use you like that in somebody's life today? Lord, I want to be a part of your plan. And instead of sitting back expecting God to do everything for us, we need to be willing to let God work through us and use us to accomplish His, His plan in the life of other people. And I'm certain that somebody did that for you. Am I right? You think back over the years, and there was someone in your Christian life, and and God used them to just do amazing things, to help build you up and strengthen you and enable you and encourage you, edify you, and to make you what you are today. And there's probably somebody within arm's length of you that needs for you to be that kind of a person in their life. Let's all stand together. Father, how thankful we are for those that you have used down through the years as an encouragement. 
those that have been there to, to help when, when really nobody was even helping them. And not only, Lord, do we think about what you've done in years gone by th- through the ministry of people, but we think about those who even at the present are involved and determined to be a blessing to others. God, forgive us of allowing ourselves to get sidetracked by that few that don't want to do anything, that few that is critical of everything. Help us to get our focus off of them and to think about the many people that you have put in our life to help us. And help us, Heavenly Father, as a result of that, to be somebody's helper, to strengthen them and to help them in their struggles. We thank you for loving us, providing everything that we need. And we just pray that we might love others in that same way, that we'll be there for them in their time of need. For we pray in Jesus' name. As we stand and sing... If God's speaking to your heart, it might be about the fact that you need to unite in church membership. It, I, I don't know what it might be. It might be that you're here and you've never received Christ as your Savior. And you don't need to worry about trying to live right until, first of all, you, you've received eternal life. And you need to take care of that this morning while we sing together.